Romans chapter 1. There's only two verses today, but I have 11 pages of notes. Blessed is the preacher that knows what to leave out. And that's what I need a lot of prayer today. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, of, for, of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles, the Greek. For it is the righteousness, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man, or the just, shall live by faith. Lord, there could not have been better words spoken this morning. I can't imagine saying anything more than these two verses. They stand on their own, as they ought to. It's your word. Yet, Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you allow clays, uh, vessels of clay and vessels, Lord God, that are not worthy to even mention this verse, to expound on it. Please help me to be able to share that which you have laid in our hearts, in my heart, and be able to communicate clearly. And Lord, perhaps with not many words, since we have communion today, you help me bring across the clear message that we all need to hear Christian and unbeliever, because we all need the gospel. We all need to live it. We all need to believe it and continue to believe it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul is dealing here with the church in Rome. He'd never met them. He's never been there. And he writes to them the longest New Testament letter that we have. In fact, it is the longest letter in the ancient world. Although you guys like history and archaeology, there is no longer letter than this, uh, this letter you have in your hands, the book of Romans. Uh, it's the longest letter they found in the ancient world, at least in the first century uh, period of time, the New Testament time, we would call it. It's the longest letter. So it takes a long time to read, and it takes a long time to preach, so you can go easy on me. It is the longest letter, longer than Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. It has the most amount of words. It is the book of Romans. And in it, Paul is dealing with his calling, which is our calling. We talked about that last week. I'm not going to go into it. It takes too long to recap everything. But he's dealing with his calling, and his calling was to go to the Gentiles. And the time that he lived in was the Roman Empire. And he was to go to bring the message, the gospel. And it's called the gospel of God in verse 1. The gospel of God, not the gospel of Paul, although he did say it was his gospel to preach. But it was the gospel of God. It's the message of God. And the whole book of Romans has to do with a few things. In fact, the first few chapters... Is this ugly word, sin. In fact, God starts with this issue because the first three chapters of Romans have to do with this. So if you have your Bible, you can mark it down very easily. If you don't have your Bible, use your neighbor's Bible, but at least have a Bible that the first three chapters deals with sin. Now, that might not be the best place to start for some people. may say, why did you have to start with that? My friend, if you don't realize that this is the biggest need we have is forgiveness of sin, then we haven't got the whole point yet of the Bible or of the gospel. The issue is sin. The issue is sin and the wrath of God. First three chapters, about half of the third chapter, by the way. And Paul has this beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, example to the believers because he had lived as a sinful man. He had lived as a man trying to 
be right with God by his own works, by his own law, by the, by the law of Moses. He tried to be good enough to get there. And he came to a giant conclusion. You can't be good enough. You can't be good enough for God to save you. Um, you have to be, you have to realize that you are not so good. And only those who believe and realize that they're not so good, they're the ones who get saved. And God makes them good. Those who believe they're too good will never become good because they'll never have, see a need for Jesus. They'll never see a need for the gospel, which is the four, point of the first three chapters. People have sinned. All of us have sinned. All of us have messed up. All of us have blown it. And Paul makes it very clear. The heathens, those who lived, verse 18 through, 20, uh, through the end of chapter 1, all those who practice those sin, they are sinful too. But then in chapter 2 says morality cannot save you. And then in chapter 3, religious people are not getting in to the kingdom of God if they rely on their religion. So church attendance, church membership, uh, do-gooders, feed the cat, wheel, meals on wheels. If you deal with that and believe that that is your, God owes you something because you've done it. Paul says you have a gigantic deception coming in a gigantic disillusion. You're not coming in. We all know the, the drunkards and the immoral people and maybe even those who went to the concert yesterday who heard the gospel would say, we know those, they, they're not getting in. Well, Paul says, neither are you if you believe in yourself, if you believe you can save yourself, if you believe religion can save you. You're not getting in either. And it puts everybody in the same boat, isn't it? That's what Noah said. It puts everybody on the same plane. All have sinned, all fallen short of the glory of God. And he brings us to this passage, it's verse 16. And I have to hurry today because we have communion. So I have to tell you that it was probably going to be part two tomorrow, uh, next Sunday. And, and so maybe you won't come after this one, but maybe hope you do. Um, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek just sharing with you a quick way how we do Bible study. One of the things you could do right away is figure out what are the key words in this passage. And you'll notice that if you look very carefully, there are four, uh, four times this little three-letter word comes up, and it's the word for, 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 for. And um, we don't talk like this so much anymore because we use, we use this word now, because. That's what that word means, because. So when you read it, you could say, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God. Because it is for salvation to everyone who believes, because in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. That's what Paul uses that word. And why was he saying that? In fact, Paul is building every time he says a statement in that verse, he's building on it. So you could try it like this. Why are you not ashamed, Paul? He says, I am not ashamed. Sort of a burst into the scene. I am not ashamed. It's like somebody walking in and says, I am not ashamed. And you ask him, why aren't you ashamed? Because it is the power of God. I am not ashamed because I'm preaching the power of God. Are we ashamed? That would be the question that we have later, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Why is it the power of God? Why is the gospel the power of God? Read the last, well, next to the last sentence. For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed. Do you want to know why the gospel is important? You want to know why we are not to be ashamed? Just read that verse. It is the power of God. We shouldn't be ashamed of the power of God. And it because it also reveals his righteousness. It is the gospel that reveals the righteousness of God. You can say the gospel by all means in the New Testament, the number one usage of the gospel, it is the gospel of righteousness. It is the gospel of righteousness. Uh, it's mentioned many times. Other times it's mentioned like the my gospel, Paul says, the gospel of peace and things like that. And people like that. But the number one usage of the gospel testament, New Testament term, the gospel of of righteousness. And the question is, of course, what is righteousness? We'll get to that and maybe even next week. But let's deal with the gospel of God. So four things today. Very simple. The gospel of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God, and Paul ends with the word of God. Quoting from Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2. And if you are anything like me, you would say, what does Habakkuk have to do with this verse? What does a prophet that lived so long ago have to do with my life? Everything. A man in Israel wrote this. A man, a righteous, shall live by faith, and it affects your life today. This is powerful, the word of God. He can use people like that to describe something so powerful, and yet it could be very vital and very um, for us to live by. So let's deal with this. What is the gospel? By the way, the gospel, that word gospel in English is an old Anglo-Saxon word. So if you have old uh, Anglo-Saxon background, this may be of help to you. God's spell is what the originally was called. God's spell. Well, what's a, what's a pell? If you know ancient English, we don't speak English anymore. It means a message. Pell, message. We have some similarities in our English language. We still have the word spelling. But I heard they don't teach that to kids anymore in, in school. I, 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 they told me, the teacher told me this. They don't care about spelling. They just care about turning it in and taking a test. How unfortunate. But that's where it comes from. A message. God's spell or God's message became shortened to the gospel. That's English. But the word of God wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. That word in Greek has a beautiful word. And it's the word euangelion. And it literally means good news. So it's, the God, it's God's message in English. It's good news for us to us in the, the, the study a little bit of Greek. Euangelion. You will say, well, that sounds like evangelism. Yes, sounds like an evangelist. That's where we get that word except for the U. It became a V. And the gospel is that. And so what it was used in the old days, in the ancient times, because this word was used everywhere. In fact, it's a very common word among the common people. This was not high Greek or classical Greek. It was the Greek you would use on the streets, in the back alleys, in the fishing boats. Euangelion! What happened? Some guy just came in with good news. What is the good news? The war is over. We've won. Good news. Soldier came back, and they backed for the war. It was also used for good news for food. The price of food just went down. Euangelion. Good news. It's common usage. Get the point. Common usage. It wasn't some classical church word. It was a word that was used by everybody. Everybody. But the Bible uses that everyday term and uses it for everyday people. This is why the gospel is for everybody. 
The gospel is for everybody. It's not for theologians or scholars. In fact, a lot of times they get in the way. The gospel is for everyone because God used the language of everybody. In fact, there were other Greek types of Greek, classical Greek and high Greek and things like that, scholarly Greek. Nobody read those. He talked to a guy on the street. He spoke Koine Greek. Koine is the language of the New Testament. God wanted it to, the average person to know the truth. I love that because he didn't want anybody out of it. Why does Paul mention this? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Some people have said Paul was proud of the gospels. That's why he said, I'm not ashamed. As is to say, you know, when you say the opposite, it means that you, you, know, you actually believe the opposite. I am not ashamed. That means he's proud. I don't believe Paul was saying, although I believe he was proud of the gospel, I don't believe he was trying to say, I'm proud of the gospel. I'm, see, I'm not ashamed. I think he's answering a very, very important question, and that has to do with, what they believed about Paul, the Romans, the Roman church, what they believed about Paul, because this gospel is so incredible. It is out of this world. Uh, the more you think about the gospel, you can't even believe it's, it's, it's true. It is so good. It cannot be true, right? As, as I was growing up, they used to tell me, you know, if it's free, don't take it. If it's free, it's broken, and you're going to have to deal with it, right? Don't take anything free. If it's free, it's broken. Because you had to earn everything, right? That's what you were told, right? No, nobody here? That's what you were told. You need to earn everything that you have. If it's free, question it. Well, the gospel is so good. It's free. You can't even believe it's that good. And you can't believe it's actually the reality. A baby born in a stable was God. And this baby did, grew up and did miracle after miracle. This man lived on the shores of Galilee, healing people, raising people from the dead. One day he took five loaves and two fish, and he fed everybody, 5,000 men plus women and children, so about maybe 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and then had leftover for his friends, and they took 12 baskets uh, with them back home. Um, scientific people can understand this. Um, People can't believe the gospel, that this man was, was God. This baby born in a major was God. Um, well, this man was also charged uh, with a criminal, a criminal charge, which he didn't do. And he died among two criminals, a gruesome death. And by that death, he saved the world. I mean, when you start lining up the facts about the gospel, you go, man, this is a pretty amazing thing. And then he came back from the dead. Three days later, he was back talking to people, eating with people. And he said, unless you believe that this has happened, that you have no place in the kingdom of God. That's a pretty phenomenal message, isn't it? Who talks like that? In our scientific age, people would go, ha, huh, you believe that junk? That's like believing in the spaghetti monster. That's like believing in the flying spaghetti monster. You know, that's what they used to tell me when I was uh, not a believer, right? Uh, where I used to tell that to people too. That's so crazy. Come on, really? In our scientific age, this would not fly. So some say the gospel is irrelevant. doesn't matter. Look, nobody wants to know this pastor. Everybody just wants to live their own life. They want to work. They want to go on vacation. They want to live their lives. They want to feed their family. They don't want to deal with the gospel because it's so irrelevant. Come on. Welcome to the real world. You know, after we live here, we're going to go to the real world. And I've had people tell me that even in this church. You know, oh, you know all your church stuff, when you go out to the world, that's the real world. And I used to say, well, I live in the real world. And you know what keeps me? The gospel. <laughs> I said, that's, that, that, I get to, I come here to get refocused. 
because I go over there and I get a little bit, you know, off focus. That's not reality. This is reality. I come back and get my bearings straight, and then I go back and tell them, that, you know, to get the gospel right, to get the get the life straightened out. Some say it's insignificant. Pastor, come on, really? Look at the amount of people in this church. Look at the amount of people that come and believe the gospel and, and actually live it and believe it. It's so a minority, even in the United States, and people don't want to be part of a minority group because it makes them feel less. We want to be part of the big group. And, and yet very few people do it. Paul said to the Corinthian church, you Corinthians, he said, there's not many mighty in it. There's not many mighty in the church. Not many strong, not many wise. All you've got is a bunch of slaves and poor people. Maybe a few guys that are a little bit smart, you know, not many nobles. Maybe a few guys are there, but for the most part, you guys are all weak, and you guys should all be ashamed. But Paul told them to, God uses the weak to confound the wise. We'll get to that on another time. But that's a different message. I have notes on that too. <laughs> I am not ashamed, Paul said. Why? Because the gospel can be insulting. The gospel can be insulting. So it's, people think it's irrelevant. People think it's insignificant. People think it's insulting. Why? Because it, the most refined men and women in this world, the gospel tells them you're not right. You're just as lost as the drug abuser, as the drunker, as the prostitute. The most refined of all men. Uh, you must say that even the guys in high class and Wear a $5,000 suit. The gospel tells them, you need to believe this message. You can walk up to someone today uh, you know, that has a high salary, million-dollar salary, best places in the world he lives, and you can walk up to the door and say, unless you believe what I'm telling you, you're not going to make it to heaven. It's only going to be a short time. It treats everybody the same, and it's insulting to people because people think, I should be treated better than that guy. I work better. I studied more. I'm more refined. Look at those losers over there. And the gospel says, no matter if you're rich, poor, smart, not so smart, you're all sinners, you're all lost, and all need a Savior. The lost person says, hallelujah, where can I sign up for this? You know, the, the individual that knows that they're messed up, they go, this is the greatest news. The refined person says, who died make this guy Talk about this. It's crazy. Get him out of here. And you find that a lot in churches. You find that a lot in churches. People, very refined, respectable church members, um, are ashamed of the gospel because it insults them. It insults what they have accomplished. And they don't realize they're just as lost and just as need of a Savior as every one of us. But Paul the Apostle says, I am not ashamed. And Paul was up against a great culture. You think you're up against something? Take a look at this. Paul was again, uh, up against the Greek philosophy of the day. The philosophers of the day. You know, the logic, the culture, the background, the wisdom of the great philosophy, the great minds of the Greek culture. And Paul stood. This poor little Jewish guy stood in that Greek mountain, Mars Hills by the Areopagus in Athens, and he stood there and he told them about a man on a cross. And the Greek philosopher said, ha, huh, who is this guy bringing the strange teachings? He's not sophisticated like us. In the culture of the, Jew of the, of the Greek world, uh, the best minds and the thinking and the logic, he was up against that. And he stood there telling people about a man on a cross 
that had died and rose again. He was also up against the mighty Roman Empire. See, Roman, Rome, the Roman Empire was the, the, the strength, the power, the military, but the Greek had conquered them in their mind and philosophy and culture. It was a Roman Empire filled with Greek thinking and culture and philosophy. And here was the Roman Empire, the great army, who says, if you come against Rome, you would be executed. If you come against Rome, you'll be executed. And by the way, we executed that other guy from Nazareth too. It's just fact they didn't believe he came back from the dead. But Paul was against the mighty power of Rome. But Paul was also against Jewish morality. People that said, just be good like us. Just follow these rules here and you don't need anybody. You just need yourself. You need to be good enough. And they had a goodness. These were the do-gooders. They practiced about being right. They had 10 commandments, which we all know about, but they also had 603 other ones. And Paul was one of them. Paul was one of these do-gooders, religious, law-keeping, and he found himself to be the biggest hypocrite because he said, the things that I've tried to keep, I've actually been a lawbreaker. I've actually broken the law by trying to keep it because I have only tried to keep a certain portion of it. If you're going to try to keep keep the law and live by it, you got to keep the whole thing, 613. I can tell you some of them I can keep very well. Don't eat spiders. My goodness, I am a faithful keeper of that commandment. Amen? Don't eat bats. Praise the Lord. I am faithful to do that. I am a law-abiding. But covetousness? Hatred, loving God and loving thy neighbor as you love yourself, not so good. Lying, and then Jesus comes and says, well, I'll tell you what that really meant, not murder, don't hate. Not adultery, don't lust. Don't steal, no, don't covet. And Paul said, I died that day when I heard that the law was dealing with my insights. Because the outside was good, brother. The outside was good. He was a man that lived according to the law. And he said, man, if you were looking at me from the outside, I was really good. I was a professional do-gooder. But on the inside, I found all manner of coveting and unrighteousness. I needed a savior. I didn't need the law. I needed a shepherd. I needed somebody who come and save me. And so he comes to Rome and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And he begins to talk to Christians about this. This was the, the, the book of Romans, not written to the unbeliever. It is written to Christians. It's written to you. If you believe in Jesus and are born again, that is who it is written to. So why does he go through the gospel? My friend, I'll tell you one thing. There's lots of reasons. We'll get to that in chapter 9 through 11 but, and, and through the study. But one major thing, as a Christian, 20 years, 10 years, 5 years, 50 years, it doesn't matter. You still need the gospel. Because you, you believed it, and that's how you came in, but you still need to continue to believe it. And not just to continue to believe it, you need to put it into action in your life. You need to live it and defend it and share it. And that's what Christians need the gospel. And I believe, personally, Christians have forgotten the gospel. Christians have forgotten to live the gospel. Oh, they could agree with the statement of faith? Absolutely. Oh, they could agree with the facts? I can give you a five-minute test, and you could all pass it. Because, you know, I know you guys believe the same things. But that is only the beginning. What do you do with what you just checked off as true? What do you do with the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? How did that change you? How did that change your life? Are you living by it? 
You're trusting him in it. Every day, knowing that your need is just the same as it was that first night. Remember the first night you came to the Lord? In tears, broken, humble? No? Maybe? Some, some of you? Okay, good. Um, if you came with arrogance, my friend, maybe you're not even saved yet. Because the gospel is to humble you, is to realize. That's why you go down and down, and then you go down again, and you go into the waters of baptism. Because you're really low now. Because you realize you died to self. And that's the gospel of God. The only reason you can say this, that Paul was talking to Christians about it because they needed to hear it. But also the fact of this. Look at verse 12. Just go take your eyes and go up a little bit from verse 16. Look at verse 12. That is, I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by others' faith, both yours and mine. But I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often have planned to come to you, and but I was prevented in order that I may obtain some fruit among you, even uh, as among the rest of the Gentiles, I am under obligation both to the Gentiles and to the barbarians, that means the uneducated, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you and also in Rome. I believe verse 16 is an answer to that question. Why isn't Paul here? Maybe he is ashamed of the gospel. Why isn't Paul preaching in Rome yet? Why he hasn't shown up yet? He's gone everywhere. And he's been telling us he wants to come, but why hasn't he here? And Paul says, look, I wanted to come, but I was prevented. We don't, we're not told exactly why, but I believe Paul was prevented because other people needed the gospel. Other people needed to hear the truth. And he kept praying and praying, asking God, make a way to Rome, make a way to Rome. His heart was for Rome. But God said, no, not yet. I'm going to bring it to Rome. And we'll get to that in a moment. But he came in, an un, in a way I don't think he expected to come. See, he expected to come and, and preach at the Colosseums and preach to these Romans and the slaves. He showed up in chains, under guard, a prisoner, shame. He never thought he would come like that, but that was God's plan for him. But let's continue. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed means greatly embarrassed, greatly embarrassed. And there is a touch of embarrassment, if you think about it, in our own lives. And I've heard myself and other people, sometimes when we tell people that we're Christians, and uh, I say this to my shame, sometimes I feel like I'm apologizing why I believe. You ever been there? No? Sometimes you feel like, I just have to, like, really kind of maneuver my way around. And I'm good at that. Maneuver around every single possibility except for the reality that, I just believed that Jesus died for my sins and rose again from the dead and that I was a really bad sinner, even though I pretended to be really good. And he died for me and rose from the dead. And I really believed Noah's Ark. I really believed those things happened. I really believed, uh, you know, Jonah was swallowed by, a, by a, uh, a fish. I really believed that. Now, I came from the scientific aspect of, you know, wanting to be a doctor, wanting to be a scientist. I, I came from that mentality. I was suicide in that community. What? You don't believe what you cannot prove? Well, I can prove it through history, archaeology, prophecy. I can prove it through that. But I also believe it's true. I also believe it's God's convicted me of the truth. I have faith in him. It's, it's, a, it's a dual aspect of it. It's not just all logic. It's also hard, too. It's also being convinced of the truth. You're out of here. You're crazy. You believe in that kind of stuff. You're one of those faith people, you know, those hallelujah people. Well, Maybe, maybe so now I'm included in with those who are not light. And in the scientific community, that is crazy. 
to commit something like that. But there's a test. Are you eager to preach the gospel? If you're eager to preach the gospel, as Paul says, then you're not ashamed. See, if you're eager to preach the gospel, then you're not ashamed. If you're eager, you're not ashamed. If you're reluctant to preach it, if you're reluctant, and, and by the way, the word preach is you can preach to one person. One of the best verses in the Bible, in the book of Acts, is that Stephen preached to him the gospel of Jesus. Him, person, singular person. You can preach to a person. You have to preach to 10,000 people. Blessed are you if you can. I'm not a good evangelist. There are better evangelists here in this church than I am. You can do that to one person. One person. You can preach. He said, oh, I'm not a preacher. Yes, you are. If you share the gospel with somebody, with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, if you love them, you would tell them. You preach them to them. So don't tell me you're not a preacher. You just don't have as many people. But then you get comfortable at it. Right? The more you do it, the better you get at it. And the more you do it, the more people you want to come around. You say, hey, I want to come and tell you guys real quick. We'll meet at the break time at work. Ten minutes. Let me tell you in 10 minutes the gospel of Jesus, right? But why are we ashamed? Let's turn to real quick something that happened in the gospels. Let's turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Why are we ashamed of the gospel? Just very quickly, possibilities. And I believe the Bible supports some of these possibilities and some of the temptations because all of us in some degree feel a degree of, hmm, I'm not sure how I can tell this person straight up without making them feel uncomfortable, making me feel uncomfortable. John 12, verse 42. It says this, Nevertheless, many of the rulers, these are the Jewish leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. So the question is this, why do people rather have the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That's the first thing. Why are we ashamed of the gospel? We seek the approval of man first above the approval of God. And why? Well, if you look at it this way, you are around people. You listen to people. You, you know, you're around other people. You listen to people. You depend on some people sometimes. You depend on them. And uh, you draw from them even comfort. Sometimes you're going through a bad time and, and you look for their approval whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's in family, whatever it is. You're around them, you listen to them, you take comfort in them, you depend on them to some degree. And that's the reason we seek the praises of men. We're around them. We need them. We, we, we're sort of around them in a, in, a, in a general way, but also a specific way. But isn't that our need for God? That we need his comfort. That we need his approval, yes, that we need his, that we need to listen to him, that we need his comfort, that we need to be around him more, and we need to think of him more. So we draw strength from the Lord, right, in your difficult times. And so why do people become ashamed? Because their eyes are fixed on people. Because it's natural. It's the natural thing to do. You're around people today, and you wouldn't want to offend anybody, per se, and so we're very careful and very nice about things, right? Because we depend on people, we're around people, we listen to people. In fact, we even comfort from people. And he says, I'd rather listen to them. But that's taking the place of God in a, in a very real way because God's the one who's to supply. He's to supply all of that for you. Your need for him, comfort, strength, listening to him, and getting his approval. And so our thinking 
our thinking needs to be throughout the day, it's about God. I think about your situation. Don't ask me. I won't show, I'll ask you for a show of hands. I won't ask you. But if you're going through a really, really difficult time, it will be a time of doubts and discomfort and trials and difficulties and, and worries and fears and storms and come, and you begin to go, how is this going to work out in my life? And you go and talk to people about it. And you try to go with them and try to get some help from them, right? And you avoid at all times the idea that this is actually going to work out for good. When God promises is that he is working this out for good. And we fix our eyes on people and try to get an answer from them instead of thinking about God and thinking like, wait a minute, I learn in church that God works all things according to his purpose, that he is in control of this world, that everything is under his hand. And this is my issue, how amazing God is and how little do I think of him throughout my day, especially when I go through difficulties and trials, right? Or on the other hand, when everything's so good. That God is in control of that. But sometimes when we think of the trials and difficulties, right, we draw comfort from other people and we lose sight of God and we forget God is so good. He's so amazing. He's working all things for good. He's going to work this out for good. Turn to Psalm 71 really quick. He's going to work all things for good. Psalm 71. The issue is I don't think about God that often, that he's really that much in control. Uh, I begin to worry and fret about the things that are going on in my life and forget that how good God is. 71, Psalm 71, verse 15. Uh, yeah, verse 15. He says, my mouth will tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long. For I do not know the sum of them. I will come with my mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. Think about this. Throughout your day, is God at the center of your thinking and center of your day that even when the bottom falls out and trials come and sideswipe you, that you still hold to the fact that he loves you, that he accepts you as his child, if you're, if you're, if you're his son or daughter, um, he accepts you. He is working that which it doesn't feel good. He's working out for good. Does he take up and occupy the space of your thinking and of your mind and of your action every day? When there's comfort that's needed, it's the Lord. When there's strength that I need, it's the Lord. When there's not only comfort, but strength, but direction, is it the Lord? And see, we fix our eyes on people because we're around them, of course. And we think about them. And so we began to put that pressure on us that, oh, I'm ashamed because I'd rather have their approval. There's, so, there's a shame. You seek their praises, right? Uh, because they, they praise you. You know, how smart you are, how cool you are. You know, hey, like your hair and whatever, clothes, whatever. You know, you, you, I don't know, whatever you guys, uh, you know, praise each other for, right? Uh, but... You, you draw from it, and it makes, there's, a, there's an emotional side to it. It makes you feel good about it. But have you ever read what God says about us? That he loves you, that he forgives, that he accepts you. That if you've fallen as a righteous man seven times in one day, he'll pick you up again. <laughs> right? That he will accept him, and, 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 and you can trust him in it as a faithful God. 
And to see if your mind occupied that all the time, how good God is, that he's working things in your life. And you're like, I'm single. I'm never going to get married. He's working it out. My marriage is a mess. Well, not mine, but my marriage is a mess. God's going to work it out if you trust him. But where do we go? I got to talk to the counselor, you know, godly woman or man may be, but you need to talk to God and don't seek his praise. Don't even seek my praise. You know, I, I would just agree with the Lord. I'll just be like, brother, praise Jesus for you because God forgives you. No matter what happened, he loves you and forgives. Keep walking, right? But if you say, Pastor Michael said I was all right. <laughs> I said, that's all I need. My friend, that will last one second. <laughs> It'll, it'll, be, it'll evaporate faster than the, than the water outside in the midst in the morning when it's 110. It won't last. Don't seek it. It won't work. It'll give you disappointment and disillusionment. But God says he's done all these things. Think about this. God is working all things prophetically in this world. That of all the things that are happening in life today, in the world, politics, government, he tells you about it in advance. There'll be a nation of Israel, and there'll be a nation surrounded by enemies, and enemies that hate God, Islam, enemies that had nothing to do with God, that would persecute them and kill them, and mentions the countries by name, Iran, big one, right? There will be the forces of Iran coming in. There'll be a United Nations wanting to come into Israel and destroy. And there'll be a persecution of Christians throughout the world. And God warns us about that and tells you in advance. How? I mean, he didn't say, you know, Australia's going to take over the world. He didn't say Australia's going to be persecuting Israel. That would be really weird. He says, no, it'll be Iran. It'll be the surrounding nations of Islam against Israel. God works in you. Right? God works in you. God is so real. And what you want to know God is real? Look at this. Um, there's an old church father. Um, I forget what century it was, but he was very godly. And he said, read the book of Romans twice a week. Have it read out loud to you. Hear it two, two times a week, and it'll change your life. Have it read to you, or read it yourself. You have audio now. You can put it on the audio Bible. Now you have the book of Romans read to you twice a week and see what it does to you. And for a moment, you would say, huh, how funny. And most of you won't try it. Most of you won't do it. Even though you know the Bible is good and it's true and it's awesome, but you won't do it. Why? Why do they got to think of me? Some religious lunatic listen to the Bible all the time? Yeah, what's my family going to say? Or you doubt. I don't think it'll work. Maybe it works for that guy. Right? God accepts you and forgives you. Right? God accepts you and forgives you, but you must come to him in faith and repentance, right? And that's think all the things that God does, and yet, and yet we'd rather have the praises of men. I want my boss to think well of me. Well, I hope he does, but not for the sake of the gospel. But God thinks of you in an amazing way. God is so wise and so good, and he's, everything is under his control. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we haven't even got the, out of the first person in Romans, and we're doing not so good. Okay, well, like I said, blessed are the preachers that uh, can leave things out. I'm not so blessed today. 1 Peter 4.16. Why are we ashamed of the gospel? Peter says this, if anyone suffers, 1 Peter 4.16, as a Christian... 
let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, let him glorify God. Being a Christian involves suffering. Being a Christian involves suffering. Who allows it? God, the one who loves you. He allows the suffering. He's working something in us. Why is he doing that? He wants us to learn an eternal weight of glory that's beyond this life that you never could understand. I would put it to you this way. What we're learning as a Christian here, it's preschool in relation to the kingdom of God. The greatest scholars, no matter what they are, what they do. This is preschool stuff. Meaning, I'm not doubting, that's if all of us are in that. Meaning, you need to learn more than just coming to church on a Sunday, Wednesday or Sunday, and that's it. And, and the rest of your life lives like whatever. Amen. It's a day-to-day trusting God and living by faith. We're going to get to that hopefully next week. The just shall live by faith. God is working things out in your sufferings, in your issues. He is. He's teaching you something, but it's at a preschool level. Jesus said to the disciples, there's many things I want to tell, I want to share with you, but you can't, can't handle them right now. You'll know more later. The book of Hebrews says, I wish I can tell you more, but you guys are like little babies. Not you guys, but the, the people he's writing to. I wish I give you more. In the millennium, we're going to learn more in the kingdom of Jesus and the righteousness and the righteous kingdom of Jesus in the millennium. That'll be like elementary school preparing us for eternity. More learning. We know in part and we prophesy in part. We know a little bit. God is teaching us something. You know, part of that teaching, brothers and sisters, is suffering. And Christians shy away from suffering because we're told there's something wrong with us if we suffer. Tell that to Peter. Tell that to Job or Paul. He felt like the scum of the earth. I remember I read that verse from 1 Corinthians 4 last week. God has designed this, uh, this, this world in the sense of under this curse because of Adam and Eve. And he has designed for us to learn in this world. And, it, and the learning comes through suffering and difficulties. And Christians have to deal with two kinds of suffering in a sense. One is the the suffering from without, I mean, outside, and then the suffering from within, meaning that you have to die to self. No, no unbeliever has to go through that. In fact, you can add an element to it. It's the fact that the devil's against us, the world's against us, right? And even our own internal flesh is against us. That's an uphill battle, isn't it? The world will persecute you, Satan can tempt you, and then your flesh gives in. Man. Like you built in for a failure, but God is greater. God is greater than anything. He promises to deliver us from all temptations. If we trust in him, he'll do it, right? If your eyes are fixed on him, he will deliver you. Now, the suffering. Turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, look at verse... 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anisiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Now, Anisiphorus was a great man, was a wonderful man. 
And he was not ashamed of Paul. Why was it happening? Is Paul, he was the leader of the Christian church at this point. And as a leader of the Christian church, people looked up to him. Hey, man, I'm following the gospel that Paul's preaching. Oh, man, I want to go meet Paul. Where is he? Um, he's in jail. <laughs> he's got chains. What does he do? Well, you know, it wasn't his fault. He's just preaching the gospel. What? Your leader is a, he is a, he's a criminal? Well, you know, he's not that bad. And you begin to curtail everyone. He's, you know, he's this and that. Onesiphorus says, God's working in Paul. I know Paul is real. I know his message is real. Why is he in chains? Because God decided to use Paul in chains. God decided to use Paul in chains. God could have used Paul outside of the chains, and he did. Quite tremendously and powerful. But then God says sometimes, Paul, I want you in chains. And why did he put him in chains? Well, there's a long answer to that, and I'll try to make it as short as possible. People in Caesar's household, people related to Caesar got saved because Paul was in chains. Roman soldiers got saved because Paul was in chains. And maybe you are in chains today in some way or some form and some difficulties and trials that you're facing because people that you are around need to hear the gospel and need to see that you can endure suffering and still be a Christian and still behave as a Christian. So why am I in chains? Why is this suffering? Why is this trial? It's for you. Yes, God's working all things. And his purposes, he's teaching you how to walk like a kindergarten. There's more. There's more. It's a growth. But he's also wanting to reach other people around you in your suffering. It just doesn't feel good. I know it doesn't. But my grace is sufficient, God said to Paul. My strength is made perfect in your weaknesses, in your chains. Glory in it. Now, scan your eyes a little bit above verse 16 and just go to verse 12 of the same chapter. And it says, for this reason, Paul says, I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. I am convinced that he's able to guard what I've trusted to him until that day. He knew that God had called him to do a job. God had called him to do a job, and he had to do it, even in chains. But he knew the end was better. Chains are temporary. Suffering is a little bit for a time. I know whom I have believed. He's going to guard me and keep that which I committed to him until that day. Jesus is coming. He's going to make it all good. Things might not be so good right now, but he's going to make it really, really good. And so good, I'm going to forget this bad. (laughs) It'll not even be part of my memory. So, Lord, teach us. You know, the scary thing about that, God works in your life so much that the things that you hear on Sunday, he makes you live it during the week. What happens to me? You know, I preach something, and I'm like, why am I going through that? <laughs> Didn't you just preach that on Sunday, man? You don't believe it? Hallelujah. Now you got to live it. That's right. See, you know, some pastors play golf. I don't. But, you know, so you gotta, you, you know, you got to wrestle with these things in your life and with God to make it real. So you don't just become, you know, just, you know, here's a message. I'm going home. You know, have a good day. You have to wrestle with it and deal with it and know that the sufferings are working out of more weight of glory, a greater weight of glory in your life. If you knew what Paul was trying to tell us, you would go, Lord, even in suffering, I still trust you. Even in suffering, I still trust you. Go back to Romans, because we've got to finish off at least one point. At least one point. 
Back to Romans 1.16. Why isn't Paul ashamed? Because it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power. No doubt it is power. The psalmist said, I've heard it. I heard it twice. The power belongs to the Lord. Psalm 62. Power belongs to the, the Lord. And this is the power of God. Why is Paul not ashamed? Because it is the power of God. Nothing compares to the power of God. It is the power of God to change a person. It is the power of God to change a person for salvation. And this is quite interesting because uh, there are three ideas of salvation that you need to be aware of. And only one of them is right. Fully right. The other two are the results of this one right. Soteria in Greek means deliverance, means salvation. The Greeks thought it's only personal, physical salvation, meaning you're on a boat and you need to get rescued. And then they would say, Soteria, Soteria, salvation, I'm delivered. I was saved from a bad boat or a sinking ship or whatever it is, right? A physical salvation. The other ones believe, some people believe, that it was simply meant um, that you just become a better person, like you're safe from your, uh, your, your, your fears or you're safe from your, uh, maybe your um, uh, lack of assurance in your life or maybe your boredom or maybe uh, your worries and fears and doubts. You need to be saved from that mentally, right? So there's a salvation that is mental and a salvation that is physical, like take you out of a ship of a burning building or something like that, right? So there's two ways that they were looking at it. However, the Bible doesn't mean that uh, specifically. Primarily, primarily, the Bible, or Paul, is using the Old Testament word for salvation, which is the word Yeshua, which is we get our word Yeshua, which means salvation. Jesus' name meant salvation. I mean, people walked up to Jesus would have said, hey, what are you all about? What's your name? Salvation. <laughs> salvation. That's what his name meant. Amazing. It's like... People would be calling on Jesus. They would be calling God to save them. That's why when you call on the name of the Lord, you're asking for salvation. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's, it's a long story, uh, etymology and stuff like that. We won't get into that today. Salvation. But the salvation that the Bible says is not just salvation physically from a place. It's not salvation mentally from a condition. It is salvation spiritually. The primary meaning of this word in the Bible, it is salvation spiritually, meaning that there's something that needs to be, you need to be delivered from, specifically spiritual, not just physical, although that can come from the spiritual side of it, right? You're, you're physically better off being saved, and you're mentally better off having salvation. Your worries and fears and doubts become less as you know that God is working in you and saving you from within, salvation spiritually. And that's what Paul is referring to, salvation, soteriology. Now, salvation is in this way. The Bible tells us salvation is a process, and it's done in three forms or three faces, three different words for salvation. Turn to Ephesians 2 very quickly. Ephesians 2, and we'll be done with this. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us something very interesting about salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, famous verse. For by grace you've been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. Through faith. And that out of yourself, it is a gift of God and that not of resulting of works that no one should 
boast. We're saved by grace through faith, and it's a past tense experience. And it's a, it is something that you come to God on his terms, the grace of God. You believe God's words, you heard God's words, you trusted God's words, and God says, okay, you come to me in my terms. What are his terms? You need to die to self and follow me. And baptism, it's the perfect picture of that. Because baptism says you die to self, go in the water, and you come alive out of the water in the power of the resurrection unto life. And so you get a new heart, a new man, right? The, the new man is in you, the new heart. All these things are being worked out. You have been saved. Next week, we'll get to the other two. The Bible says you have been saved, yes, but you're also being saved. Being saved is the process in which God takes you, the justified person, and begins to build Jesus's life within you. And one great verse you could remember is Romans 12, 1 and 2, which we'll get to that probably next year, <laughs> the rate we're going. Romans 12, 1 and 2, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world and its thinking, but be transformed, be renewed in your mind. See, that renewal and transformation doesn't just take place right there. And then it is a constant process of the Word of God being in you and the Holy Spirit using it in your mind and heart to change you and make you a new creation. You started, past tense, you have been saved. Now you're being saved. Now you're being saved. You're being made into the image of Jesus. You're being built up in Jesus. And then the Bible uses the future term. You will be saved. Those who persevere will be saved. The book of Hebrews says Jesus will come again and he will appear having salvation with them, bringing salvation with them. Paul says, wake up. We're just about done. Wake up. Christ will raise you up. He says, realize the time. It's high time. Knowing that salvation is near than when we first believed. Salvation is coming. Salvation is, salvation is being built up in you. And salvation is something you did if you trusted in Jesus at some point. It was justified. It was granted to you by faith in him. It was the grace of God forgiving you. And so if you want to look it up in Theological terms and biblical terms, it's called justification, sanctification, glorification. You have been saved, you are justified. You're being saved, you're being sanctified. You will be saved, you will be glorified. And we need to continue in that path of righteousness. And that's what the, the Christian life is called the walk. It's called the walk of faith. You walk with Jesus, being built up in him and made into his image. You can make a case, and the Bible makes this case, and I could, you know, it's just not taught this well, this, this way a lot of times. Salvation is not just going to heaven. That's the result of having salvation. Salvation is being made like Jesus. Amen. God is not going to be done with you until you look like Jesus, until you behave like Jesus, until you act like Jesus, until you're fully righteous like Jesus. Well, pastor, he's got a long way to go. I said, yes, but he who started a good work, he's faithful to complete it in you. He promises that. And no matter where you started, we all started being justified. 
And no matter where you are today as a Christian, you're being set apart, sanctified. And if you continue in that, my friend, you're going to look like Jesus, for you will see him as he is, and you will be known as he is known, for you will look just like him. That's what the Bible teaches us. Salvation. And that's what Paul is preaching. Salvation is the power of God unto what? To make us rich? No. It is severely, sorely disappointed. And many people, many Christians have given up their lives, not in a physical way, but in a financial way, have given up their lives to seek after the Lord in ministry. Because it wasn't about the money. I know believers, wonderful pastors, teachers, believers that they could have been amazing in this world. CEOs, top 100 doctors and lawyers. And they said, I have a calling. Jesus called me. I don't make much money, but my reward is with him. It's not about the money here. We could have been great. Could have been a great you know, CEO or something. But God had a plan. And Paul could have been the greatest of the greatest rabbis. He could have been the, he had the best mind. He had the understanding of Greek philosophy, Jewish traditions and history and Old Testament. He, could, he was a great orator. He could, and he became the scum of the earth, according to him. Nobody liked him because he was following Jesus. And his reward was the chains that he had. But he says, I know whom I have believed. This is temporary. He's bringing my reward. He's coming for me. Salvation is that. And the gospel brings you into that salvation. We're finished. The gospel brings you into that salvation. And it'll change anyone. Anyone. And that's what it says in there. For everyone who believes. Not just select few. Not just a few people. Not just some elect individuals out there. It says everyone But there is a clause, right? Who believes? It is for everyone, but not everybody believes. It is for everybody. It's not for a select chosen people. The gospel is for everyone. But the qualification is this. Do you believe? Trust. Submit. Commit to him. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus... Thank you for every blessing and goodness. Thank you for the cross and the blood of your son. Thank you for your words from Paul. Lord, it's hard to imagine one verse took this long, but yet they're so rich that, Lord, it could have gone on for a longer time. And people have expounded this much better than I have. So, Lord, I pray that you would take what was said today. Bless your people. Help them understand your word. Help them to apply the gospel to their lives in a real practical way that, Lord, that you're working in them. You're working in their trials. You're working in the midst of them. You're working in them and through them to bring about your good pleasure. Help them to realize, Lord, that you love them and you forgive and you accept them back if they turn back to you. Lord, I pray that they would not be ashamed of being a Christian and the suffering and the trials that come with it, Lord, but they will embrace the full measure of Christ. Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the communion we're about to receive, and my brother Brad, who will be leading us in it, Lord. We pray, Lord God, that this message will touch the hearts of even those who don't believe, those who are on the fence, and those who may be seeking something else. I pray you bring them back, Lord God, that this is your power, the power to change them, the power to spiritually 
change them, to bring about a good work in them. And Lord, I praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.